0: So we're gonna up right now with the time of question and answer with Steve Koss, who just brought the address this morning. And also we're pleased that Richard Stearns is here. If you gentlemen would just come and join us. Richard is president of World Vision USA. He'll be more formally introduced. But both of these gentlemen are free now to answer questions and to allow us to process. I think some of us need that time. So I would invite you, if you're interested in asking a question or just sort of um, Directing some thoughts towards these folks to come forward and use this mic. Or if you're not able to come forward, just raise your hand, and Brittany has a mic, she's right over here in the corner. She'll be looking for you if you would like. But this is our time. So let's just take a minute and uh, breathe. If you're like me, I need to do that. And then go right ahead, anybody who's willing and ready to go, come forward and use this mic for a question.
1: I'll jump in. Uh, my name is Ted Schultz. Uh, I'm an interim pastor at the Presbyterian Church uh, in Mount Vernon. And uh, could you reflect on the uh, uh, the process of church mission trips uh, wow. that are um, very popular now? First started out with youth, but now we're getting. Trips. We're getting churches adopting villages. Uh, I know one of our churches. Uh, Shame have ask for asked such a difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is, as you stated it, is exactly that. Uh, there's an increase in travel. Um, these are called short-term mission trips. There's actually
2: a code for it. We, we love codes, a world vision. SST, short-term teams, or STT, short-term teams. Um, There is something probably wrong when we spend more on our plane ticket than we do on investiture into a community that is crippled because of its lack of resources. There is something mildly wrong with that. At World Vision, we've actually struggled with this heavily because, of course, 97, 98% of our staff are indigenous. When we go into a community, the idea that in their community with their priorities raising together as a community. So how to do that in a way that is sensitive to the culture, sensitive to the people you're going to visit, we actually call them vision trips. And many of our leaders who go with us struggle. Struggle. If you can imagine going into a a community that's 35 to 40% HIV adult and uh, finding that your job is not to go and had the fevered brow, uh, deliver the resource kit that will deliver the stuff and come back with a good story and a photo. Instead, we say, no, you're going to go in and build a relationship with the community leaders. You're going to listen to them, you're going to learn from them. And what we find ourselves in becoming learners of them, we actually find out how to appropriately come alongside them. And that even, uh, to say that that happens in the first trip is rather grandiose. Uh, typically that's repeated trips uh, now obviously does that work for us in terms of resources going into a community? We happen to think so because many churches have partnered with us and created the resource pool There's often needed to take care of the, of, the, of the Priorities that that community has set aside as important these grassroots issues that they're often uh, totally flummoxed by so Difficult question and for us one in which we continue to wrestle
1: for a minute, um, many of our kids have gone to Mexico for short-term vision trips, or many churches have sent delegations to Africa for short-term vision trips. <laughs> Ask yourself a question, uh, and often what's done on those trips is you know you build a house, you build a school, you paint a building, uh, you dig a latrine. Do you really think Mexico needs cheap labor? Um, so here are all these Americans going down, they're highly educated, highly capable, some of them are corporate executives, you know, Church leaders digging a latrine, painting a house. Uh, many of those trips end up making us feel good uh, because we've done something for the poor, um, and we can come back. And if that trip is the last thing we do, do for the poor that year, uh, I would argue it has been kind of an ego trip for us to go shed a tear, uh, walk a few days with the poor, and then come home and go back to the party, whatever we were doing. Now. I think these mission trips have a place. If they are the on-ranks to a lifetime of service and advocacy on behalf of the poor, then they are worth the price of the mission. So if through that mission trip or mission trip, you become acquainted with poverty, justice issues, and then you come back and you dedicate a good portion of your energy uh, for years to come uh, toward those issues, toward tackling those issues, Raising awareness, advocating, then that was a worthwhile trip. Um, but we kid ourselves if we think that going to Tiquilil Stream in uh, Ensenada, Mexico, is doing <laughs> any good at all for anyone uh, other than helping us to understand. Now, I say this: uh, my own son, Pete, uh, was a wild, donkey of a boy in high school and difficult to manage in some ways. And he knew how to push my buttons. He went on a mission trip with his church to Edison, out of Mexico, to paint houses and build houses. And he came back and changed kid. And on that trip, he committed his life to serving the Lord and to going into full-time ministry. Sunday, I was at his graduation at Wheaton College. And uh, he's in his master's program now studying to be a youth pastor. Um, and it's because of that trip. So as a father, I say, I am so glad he went on that trip. Uh, because he had an encounter with God on that trip in a powerful way. Sometimes it can only happen when you get out of your comfort zone and, and into a different cultural context, and God can work in your lives. There is a book, uh, in the second part of your question, Ted, was, was what about these churches that have gone and done orphanages or built schools? There's a wonderful book that you've probably heard of. It's called When Helping Hurts. this book says be careful before you do anything because you might do more harm than good now that you're all excited. And it really talks about how churches have to be incredibly thoughtful and professional about how they go about tackling uh, cross-cultural issues of poverty because we can do more harm than good. We can be well-meaning, we can have all the right intentions, but we can really go and mess up a community uh, in a whole variety of ways because we are tone deaf to the cultural context, or put another way, there are all kinds of cultural landmines in that community, and we don't know where they're, where they're buried. Um, so when Americans go to another culture to try and try to do something good, it can also, often have unintended consequences. I have a saying, in fact the Church Leaders Forum is next, and I have a saying that I use a lot, and it goes like this, when it comes to helping the poor cross-culturally, it is rocket science. This is not simple stuff, it's very complex, it's multidimensional, and what I tell church leaders is don't go naively charging off into Africa thinking you're going to save the world or save that community. Go and listen. Go and be willing to hear and learn and study. Uh, As Steve says, don't go thinking you're going to fix things for people. Go, Go saying you're going to partner with those people to address the problems that they face, and they often know the solutions, they just need some help. They need a friend to walk with. And if churches uh, are thoughtful about it, if they gather the knowledge and expertise they need, if they hire people who have some experience in this, uh, the, the church is the most powerful force in the world, and probably the only force in the world that has the ability to literally turn around global poverty. And we would love to see tens of thousands of American churches thoughtfully going uh, to make a difference in the world.
0: Hi, I'm uh, Martha Ward with uh, Bread for the World and some other volunteer work. And I wondered if you could speak to a thing that uh, Christians and churches tend to not be so good at. We're pretty good at charity and kindness and mercy, but not the justice part, which is very clear in your message. Uh, What is preventing churches from uh, really working on
2: It's funny because the students that I'm speaking with on a lot of Christian colleges are new to, I mean, they've never heard of this, and frankly, they don't care. This idea that there's proclamational witness and then there's social justice. When I'm with most students, they put the two together and they look at me like when I'm trying to tell them that there's a real divide out there and that you're either gonna do proclamational witness, which most people term in the evangelical circles evangelism, and then there's this other part called social justice and never the twain shall meet in so many churches that I'm in. And I think that is what is keeping uh, many, especially in the evangelical uh, side of the divide, uh, from entering in for fear that if I get into that, I will lose the message of the gospel because I'm so uh, busy doing the building of social structures. the truth is that if you don't have both together, and I think this was the point of Rich's book, if you don't have both together, you don't have the gospel. Uh, what Ron Sider calls a one-sided gospel, what a one-sided gospel is a bastardized gospel. And so how do we do that? I think by how do we get those two together? I think by, if you're a pastor preaching, on both sides of that and bringing them together as one. I tried to do that, by the way, this morning. That it's not just proclamation of witness. It's also about wrapping in this understanding that that the world is not the way God wants it. And he's brought us into play as his co-workers, as ambassadors of reconciliation, across the entire landscape. That there's nothing for which he, as we all know, doesn't point his finger and say, mine. Well, if that's true, then there's not one part of the academic institution, not one part of study for which he's not lord over which means that I'm engaged in government levels, I just, I'm just i not one that likes to say, okay, now it's all to government or it's all to this or it's all to that, it is setting loose, in this case, SPU, to say, what is it God has called you to, because he has called you to something, you know, now what is it, now really become educated in that, really become home in that, so it's not just science, it's also art, and put those two together and unleash those gifts and talents that God has given you to the greater good. Let me give a couple of real world examples. And I think you're talking
1: about the power of advocacy and the power of our voices. So, if building a latrine in Mexico is not maybe the most productive thing uh, in tackling global poverty, what could we do uniquely as Americans uh, because of who we are and where we live? Um, last year, um, a bill came before Congress that was a child soldier bill. And I think there were seven or eight governments uh, internationally where we were giving direct military support to those governments. We were providing federal tax dollars to build the military capability of these seven or eight nations, all of whom uh, draft children into the military. Uh, children is defined by under 18. And some of these armies literally use 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds to carry guns and shoot people. Um, I don't know about you, but I think most of us would believe that's wrong. That's, uh, in fact, I have a problem with 18-year-olds carrying guns and killing people. But, um, but so we work within Congress uh, with a number of organizations to advocate that we need to pass a bill that makes it illegal for the U.S. government to give military assistance to any nation that drafts children under the age of 18 to serve in the military, and the bill passed. And now, those countries, if they want to continue to, ref- to receive military aid from the United States, they have to raise their draft age to 18. So there's an example of how uh, you know churches and individuals advocating toward their congressmen, senators, elected officials, uh, <laughs> made a difference. Uh, in fact, we have some stories about how a, a, a woman in a volunteer group, a woman of vision group, uh, try to unleash the power and passion of women around these issues and she literally cornered her uh, senator congressman on an airplane flight when she saw him sitting in first class <laughs> and she desperately tried to get off the plane and ran down the concourse and grabbed her congressman or senator I can't remember which it was and talked to him about the child soldier bill and he was later one of the people that helped sponsor it to, to be introduced into Congress so advocacy works and we can make a difference uh, one other proposal on the table, uh, I guess it's uh, Representative Ryan's proposal, would slash foreign assistance programs by 40%, not 4%, 40% uh, in the
0: 2012 fiscal year. And not just foreign assistance programs,
1: but the entire State Department. So diplomacy, all of our ambassadors and embassies, anything that involves diplomacy or development uh, around the world would be slashed by 40%. Um, Now, I happen to know what's underneath those numbers. And uh, the President's emergency plan for HIV AIDS relief is in those numbers. And there are millions of Africans who are alive today because of the antiretroviral drugs they're receiving because of this U.S. government program that President Bush passed through Congress. Uh, It has saved millions of lives, and these women and men are now alive to raise their children so they don't become age orphans. Uh, program cut, no more drugs, they die, period. The President's Malaria Initiative uh, is about a $1 billion a year program. It's protecting children all over the world from contracting malaria, Steve referred to this. No more malaria money for the US government, children die. Now, you may disagree about whether our tax dollars should be used for these programs, um, but it's not an academic debate because If that budget proposal passes Congress, people will die. Children will die, men and women will die. Um, And these are moral choices. I like to say that our budgets, uh, whether they're state budgets or federal budgets, they enshrine our moral values. They're not morally neutral. What we choose to spend our money on is a moral decision. And uh, very disturbing to me, in January or February, the Pew Research Center did a study, uh, a research study in America, they interviewed thousands of people and asked them, here's a list of 20 things, Uh, which of these do you think should be cut from the federal budget to solve our deficit problem? And uh, one subset of that group were evangelical Christians, and I want you to guess what the number one issue, that number one item that evangelical Christians wanted slashed from the federal budget. It was foreign assistance to help the poor internationally was number one. Now the non-Christians didn't want to cut foreign assistance to the poor in nearly the same numbers. It was the Evangelical Christians that wanted to cut assistance to the poor. The number one thing they didn't want to cut the Evangelical Christians was military spending. Now, you have to ask, what would Jesus do? You have to ask that question. Now we can influence that, and that's where our advocacy and our voices come together. And sometimes churches get uncomfortable with politics, But I think church groups uh, have a tremendous opportunity to influence Congress because if all congressmen hear is, don't spend our money overseas, Uh, don't take my taxpayer dollars, I want small government, I I want this, I want that, what they're going to hear is, well, nobody wants these foreign assistance programs, no one wants these uh, programs that in the United States. By the way, that was the number two thing evangelicals want to cut. Unemployment benefits to Americans who are out of work. Um, So if they hear from churches and church people uh, that, no, we support these things, Uh, my friend Jim Wallace likes to say that most politicians have a finger in the air. They wet their finger and see which way the wind is blowing. And uh, we need to show them the wind is blowing in this direction toward justice and toward compassion and, and not toward You know, breaks with oil companies and agricultural subsidies that end up hurting farmers in Africa and a lot of other issues. So our voice is really important. Sorry to get controversial. big, uh, too massive. Uh, what can we possibly do? And end up actually having a pity party you know, just weeping over these children and doing nothing. Uh, so, you know, i a saying that I, if I can remember how I say it, uh, uh, God never asks us to give that which we do not have. But God can't use that which we will not give. So we have to offer our lives and say, Lord, if you just want me to tutor kids in Seattle and Uh, in an inner city neighborhood or tutor immigrant children who are having a hard time uh, entering into school in the U.S. because of language and other issues that that may be mine to do the thing that I can do that makes a contribution to this big thing remember the body of Christ is a huge 2 billion Christians around the world and all it takes is for each of us to do that thing that God uniquely created us to do now on the personal versus corporate statistics issue, um, one of the things that I have to do, I have to think of one child or two children, specific children that I've met on my trips, um, because it has to be personal. I, I, I like to say that for God, this suffering of children is personal. These are his children. You know, imagine those of you who are parents. If your child was starving to death, if your child had dysentery because of the water, if your child was... 105 fever because of malaria and might die tonight um, all of a sudden that's very personal this is not some distant tragedy so we have to imagine that these are our children or our brothers or sisters or nieces and nephews that are suffering and always remember that God knows their names he knows their stories and he has a plan for their lives um, but he's sending us uh, and sometimes in some cases to rescue them in some cases to help educate
0: Um, But he's sending us uh, to be his hands and feet. And that's a tremendous privilege, and
1: not something that we should be overwhelmed by, but something we should be excited about. And if I can save that one child, or help that one child, i have make a difference. And uh, the life of a child in God's eyes is infinite, infinitely precious. Uh, So even if 22,000 more children die today, if I help that one, I believe the angels in heaven are singing rejoicing in that one child uh, who was reached
2: um, And following up on that uh, I'm going to ask you a sec- second part of your question first um, and that is how do you not get overwhelmed get engaged um, I'm not overwhelmed by the issues I'm overwhelmed by the institutional life that I, I live within a large institution you know we have to work it through different systems in order to see something that is so clearly why can't we just get to step B because well, you have to go through these other steps. Some of you are nodding your head, you know what it's like to be in a large institution. That's the part that is, quote unquote, soul killing. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually engagement with the poor, being engaged is the thing that gives life. It's what creates community. It's what actually makes me get up in the morning and be excited about what I get to do. If you're a university student, every chapel service potentially is another place to go get whacked again with overwhelm. And what I like to tell the students often, the ones that come and work with us as interns, is your job is about winnowing down or sizing down to what God has called you to do. And being able to say, that's great, what someone just shared about trafficking. But potentially trafficking isn't the thing that God has called you to do. And you'll know that because that's where the joy inside you just begins to bubble up. You're not, you don't sit there, you know, uh, consequently in overtime and overload. Uh, the thing that, where I believe God calls you to is where there's a part of you that just rejoices that you get to do this, even if other people are saying, really? That's horrible. Why would anyone want to? Oh, but I love it. Watch yourself when you say that. <laughs> that could be a directional diagnostic that God's saying, this is where I want you. But continue to bring it down to one or two things, especially in light of the fact that you've got studies and, and, and the, the college experience that you are to go through. I will use these students as an example. There were seven students, they were smart enough to realize that we were all called, according to them, we were all called to minister to people with HIV. All of them figured that out, amidst all the other issues that were presented on campus. But they also realized, we can't do this singly. We need to do this in communities so that we don't get taken apart, but that we really do get experience so that when we leave here, I don't know where these students are today, But my guess is, they're still engaged on this particular topic. And probably in very leadership-oriented ways because they were given, you know, that this place is a place to experiment. They were given a chance to exercise their leadership legs and, and to really move out. And again, possibly bypassing some other messages that were given to them in light of the fact that they kept focusing, focusing, focusing. And when someone does that, people like us who are older mentors within the school system, etc., are able to give resources
0: because you've been doing the tough work of saying, it's a big world out there, but
2: God, where have you called me specifically in the time that I've got to minister? <laughs>
1: children uh, and we would love to help you uh, realize your vision not my vision for your community but your vision for your community so let's we often spend a year at the beginning of a project Eric, you know new project development a year just blue sky in the community meeting their leaders their male leaders and their female leaders hearing their dreams letting them articulate their hopes for their children from that we help them shape uh, a vision for their community, a strategic plan, if you will, a business plan for their community. What are those elements that have to change in order for you to uh, become more prosperous? And then we spend 10 to 15 years walking with that community to help them achieve their dreams. And then when we leave, it's not something we did and left. It's something they did for themselves, and they own it. And, um, so uh, to drill well and leave, that doesn't help. All. In fact, because of our approach, we did a, a, cert, a study with the Hilton Foundation about five years ago. We looked at hundreds and hundreds of borehole wells we drilled in Ghana 10 years earlier. And we came back when they were 10 years or old, older and said, How many are still operating uh, the way they were intended to operate? It was 93% were still operating. And the UN average, uh, UNICEF, is under 50% and sometimes under 25%. Very different model, uh, but because of our empowerment model, community involvement model, using appropriate technologies, 93% were still operating.
2: I, I would just add one thing. If any one of our mission uh, groups, churches, added the word sustainable to the vocabulary, uh, over time, is this successful over time? Whether it be on a short term mission, kinds of experiences, whether it investments we make. What is sustainable? Maybe the other word would be what is transformational. But that word sustainable, I didn't grow up with that in the churches I was a part of, nor the mission community that I was a part of. Uh, we met needs. not to say we didn't do great work or good work in the variety of places we went, but that word was totally out of our vocabulary. Because of the 10 years of world vision, that word comes up in almost every conversation. And uh, if it's going to be sustainable, then it has to be transferable to the, pop- the populace has to own it as Rich state Because uh, we're not going to be here. My son's here, or there's certain things that I have had to let him do and make mistakes or, or make victories on his own. Because why? He's not going to be in the house forever. Although someone, we would love that. I think most of the time. But at some point, he's got to be sustainable. And if a community actually took that on, then yeah, you will get unintended consequences would you you learn from those such that you're really thinking about the future and ownership of the community themselves?
0: We'll let this be our last question. There's going to be a question and answer time also at the end of the lunch. So if you've got other questions, keep those in mind. But let's let this be the last one. You mentioned Gaza. Why I wanted to ask the question, what do you say to those Christians who commit their resources Belief that they're answering God's call by supporting the settlements in the West Bank that lead to displacement and water shortages and poverty. Go ahead,
2: brother. <laughs> therefore I want the Jews to make sure that they keep the land, and I want to make sure that the Christians get out. As an organization, uh, we have trouble reading that when we read the scriptures in light of what Jesus is, and what Jesus said, and what Jesus did. And so we don't tend to get involved in uh, theological shoving matches with those who would say, wait a second, it's a dispensational Zionist line. It's where our theology has wedded itself with a political philosophy. We don't get involved in that. We say our job is to minister to the poor and in that way, world mission is pro-Israel, <clears throat> pro-Palestine. Most importantly, we are pro-peace. Okay. We are pro-nonviolence. And so we speak directly to those Palestinian elements that would see violence as a way of getting their voices heard. We'd say that's not the appropriate way to get about your goal. Uh, being done. At the same time, the level of injustice that's now being visited on Palestinian communities throughout the West Bank is, uh, as Desmond Tutu called it, apartheid on steroids. Uh, And we don't stand for that either. So we stand against that. We say that everyone has a right to be treated as a human being with certain inalienable rights that are universal in nature because God and dwell human beings a certain way. Um, and so we continue to minister to the poor because we actually believe our best work is done when we follow the dictates of our Lord and Savior and minister to the least of these in the way which he did. Um, and in some cases that means advocacy. We speak out because of what we see and we see it we tell you. We're the largest organization in the West Bank. Working with the church. Working with Muslims and Christians and those who don't share either one of those faiths. We see it, but our job is to continue to bear witness to the one who bring broad life and peace and justice. Uh, that's our job. You
1: know, a lot of uh, the Middle East issues could be parsed around the phrase, uh, the ends do not justify the means. Uh, if the end goal is a secure nation of Israel at peace with its neighbors, that's a good goal. Um, but it doesn't justify violation of human rights at the most basic level. It doesn't justify terrorist behavior in the other direction, uh, from Israel to the Palestinians. There are so many misunderstandings about the Middle East issues. Uh, one understanding is that, misunderstanding is that we have stereotyped an entire group of people. Uh, if I give you the fill in the blank, Palestinian blank, just about everybody in this room will either say terrorist or suicide bomber.
2: We have just stereotyped an entire group of people, ethnic group of people,
1: when most of them are mothers and fathers raising children, trying to get their kids to school on time. Steve, and I stayed in Palestinian homes one night on the West Bank when we were there, and I actually sat and watched Arabs Got Talent with uh, my family. (laughs) Uh,
2: They watched TV, they got their
1: favorite shows. Um, 10 years ago I was there and I watched Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in Arabic? They would translate the questions and so I could participate. These are just good, down-to-earth people. Uh, there are terrorists amidst the Palestinians. There are some that are terrorists and commit terrorist acts. Uh, there are those in Christendom that do the same thing. There are those on both sides of the conflict. But they have taken, uh, Israel has essentially taken a, a group of people And they've said, you cannot vote. You cannot uh, benefit from the Israeli social programs, the equivalent of Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, that we have here. Um, Your schools are going to be inferior because you're Palestinian. You have to carry an ID card with you at all times. Your movements will be restricted. There are places you cannot go and will be forbidden to go. So if you live in Bethlehem, you're five miles from Jerusalem. You can never go to Jerusalem, maybe in your lifetime. You can't go there because you're a Palestinian. Uh, It would be like us deciding Monday morning that everyone of Irish descent in the United States is going to be isolated in the ghettos. We're going to build walls around them. We're going to take away their ability to vote, their ability to benefit from social programs. They will still have to pay taxes to the government of the United States, but they can't vote anymore. Uh, And then we start to confiscate their land. and prevent them from moving from one side of the barrier to the other, even if the woman is in childbirth and needs to get to the hospital. Those are the kinds of violations that are happening of human rights. And uh, tens of thousands of Palestinians are Christian. So most Americans don't even realize there are Palestinian Christians. They've been there since the time of Christ. uh, And they're discriminated against in the same way. In the name of security, and the ends justify the means, as Steve said, we stand for justice. Uh, we don't think it has to be this way. We think there can be a two-state solution. We think that they can share the land and live uh, peacefully next to one another. Um, but it's, it's a very complex and difficult situation. Uh, i like to say I'm not sure Jesus would be stringing the barbed wire or driving the bulldozers or holding the sniper's rifle. I just don't think that's where Jesus would be in the middle of this conflict. And I don't think that's where we should be as a church. So maybe that's our last. I think that's it for
0: now, but I want to just close with these words that we sang just a few minutes ago. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mighty do I withhold. Take my love. My God, I pour at thy feet this treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. May it be so. In Jesus' name.